I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Munat Verdi, and Kyle Kloss. This is episode 417 for Monday, October 29th, 2012. Today's guests are Donnie McCaslin and Jeffrey Keezer, recorded at the 2012 Detroit Jazz Festival. And this is the very last episode of the Jazz Session. That's just weird. I'm not going to lie to you. I've been doing this for a long time now. Five and a half years as a podcast and 11 years that I've been interviewing jazz musicians. And, uh, wow. Yeah. Two million, more than two million downloads now. I think 2.1 or something like that. 2.2. 417 episodes of the show. Members in dozens of countries, listeners and even more than that. And it's ending. It's strange. I, I wasn't exactly sure, uh, you know, what it would be like to record the very last one of these. And it's a little bit weird, I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, it's the thing that I have identified myself by for so long that not doing that anymore is going to seem a little weird. This is just who I've been, and this is the thing that I've that I've been known for to whatever degree I am known. I am jazz famous. I can't remember who actually coined that term. I think it's the uh, promoter Garrett Shelton, who actually isn't a promoter anymore. He has some other gig now, but uh, I'm pretty sure it was Garrett who who coined the term jazz famous. And in any case, that's certainly uh, the extent of my fame. But, you know, in my own little tiny world here in, in the jazz niche, uh, I like to think that the jazz session has some amount of respect, and that feels really good. And I'm really uh, excited to have this pretty incredible archive of conversations to to leave behind. <laughs> not that I'm I'm not planning to to go anywhere. I'm not dying. Let's I, I just I don't want you to think I'm using the last show to announce my impending demise. That that's not what's happening. Uh, but you know, we're we're leaving behind uh, quite an archive. Uh, I have been contacted by some folks about archiving this at a larger institution and maybe that will happen. Uh but in any case, I'm leaving the jazzsession.com up and so all 417 episodes will be there for you to peruse. In case you don't know this, the archives are searchable in a couple of ways. Of course, there's a search box up on the top, and you can just you know type in search. But you can also go down all the way to the bottom of the navigation column on the left-hand side, and you can search by category there, as well as by date. But you can search by category which is useful because it I have categorized over the years all of the interviews by instrument. So if you want to hear all of the interviews with trumpeters and trombonists or violinists or whatever, accordion players, I think there's more than one of those. I know there are more than one of those. So you can just select the category and bring up all the interviews in that instrument. You can also do the same thing for interviews recorded with musicians from New Orleans. You can do the same thing for the Detroit Jazz Festival. You can do the same thing for the Rochester Jazz Festival. And the Tanglewood Jazz Festival, all of those things are categories. So if you want to search 
inside the huge archive in a more precise way, that's one way to do it. And of course, you can just type an artist's name into the search box. And there's also a list along the left-hand side of all of the people who've ever been on the show. So you can uh, much more quickly navigate that way as well. Huge thanks to everybody who's made this possible. Let's uh, let's start at the top. Uh, Bernie and John, my sons, who have appeared on most of the episodes, uh, they did the very last bit of the show years ago, and so they've been on the show for three or four years that way. And I think originally it was maybe just Bernie before John was old enough to do that. And then for the last year or so, Bernie and John have also been at the beginning of every show announcing announcing it right at the very top. So thank you to them. Thank you to the Respect Sextet, who allowed me to use their wonderful music for all 417 episodes. They're incredible, and they are well worth your time and money. So go to respectsextet.com. They've got albums for sale there and also their itinerary. They've got a new Christmas record coming out called Respect in Yule, which you should definitely buy just because you should buy everything they put out because it's uniformly wonderful. Thank you to Dave Rabel, who is the brother of uh, a guy that I knew and really for no reason other than that I asked him designed the Jazz Session logo all those years ago. Thanks also to Rob Grundle, who designed the Jazz or Bust logo, which I used a lot this summer. A huge thank you to the members. I mean, this would not have lasted as long as it did without all of you. There's absolutely no question about that. I, I would not have lasted as long as I did without all of you. Uh, your memberships really you know, kept me going when there was really very little else to keep me going. So uh, I'm hugely, hugely grateful to everybody who not only decided to listen to this show, but to actually you know, vote with your dollars. And uh, that, that means a ton to me, and I, I thank you. Also, thank you to everybody who's written to me over the years. I've received, uh, and particularly since I announced that the show was ending, the feedback I've gotten from people, just the the incredibly beautiful messages from people have been uh, really overwhelming, and I'm very, very grateful. Uh, many folks have taken the time to write about this show on their own blogs and, uh, you know, have taken the time just to help get the word out. Thank you for everybody who's retweeted the show. And I was off Facebook for a lot of the time that the show was on, but I know that people posted things on Facebook also, and I appreciate that. And wow, uh, I guess just thanks to everybody who's listened. Uh, it's, it's so gratifying, you know, to see how many times the show's been downloaded and to know that really all of this happened just kind of on a whim. I wanted to see if it was possible to do this kind of show purely online with no radio station behind it, really having had only the experience of doing it on the radio. And it turned out that it was possible. And in fact, it turned out that it probably was easier than if I had had to do it inside the confines of a radio station. So I'm I'm really, really grateful to all of you for listening. And then, of course, uh, last but by no means least, my thanks go out to all the musicians, uh, you know, the people who have welcomed me into their homes and spent time with me backstage right before the gig and uh, talked to me when they were, you know, busy and touring and all those kinds of things and have spent time and, and really gotten into the the meat of what it means to be a musician and a, a creative artist in this day and age. You guys are why the show works. Uh, that's the whole point of the show. And so I'm I'm incredibly grateful. And now I'm going to name all your names. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, but thank you very much. Uh, the musicians have been amazing to this show over the years um, with really 
no exceptions. <laughs> it's been it's been incredible. Uh, even the couple of contentious interviews that have happened still worked, and people saw them through. And uh, I'm I'm very very grateful for that. Well, I'm not really sure what else I have to say. I. The funny thing is I started to record the intro to this show the same night that I did the intro to the previous episode, and I thought, well, no, I I should really think about what I'm going to say on the very, very last episode. I mean, I, you know, it should be, I don't know about written out, but I should have some notes and all that kind of stuff. Come on. It's been 417 shows. You know me better than that. I didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't make any notes. I'm just winging it. Because winging it is kind of what this show, and if we're going to be honest, my entire life is about. So I, if I have forgotten something enormous, I'll just get to it on the next show, which, you know, will happen sometime. And I don't mean the next episode of this show. I mean the next show that I do. Uh, speaking of which, I am going to do some other kind of show. And I think it's going to be an arts interview show. The The feedback on the survey was overwhelmingly in favor of an arts interview show. So it's just the mechanics of actually funding that. Uh, I don't want to do it the same way I did with the jazz session. I actually want to start out with some money. So I think I'm going to run a, a crowdsourcing campaign, like a, a Kickstarter or Indiegogo campaign, and just try and raise a, a small but substantial pile of money to start the show with, because I don't want to start broke and then just try and build. Plus, I think that now more is the time when it makes the most sense for me to attempt to raise a bunch of money rather than years from now when everyone has forgotten that I ever existed. So you'll probably hear from me in that respect. And, uh, you know, I hope you'll support the new thing in the same way that you supported this. Wow, this has been nine minutes already, and nothing has happened except me talking. So let's stop that, shall we? Uh, my guests today are Donnie McCaslin and Jeffrey Keezer. Now, they played together in a duo setting at the Detroit Jazz Festival, and I thought it was just wonderful. And uh, Donnie also played with his band, which was just killing. It was a great, great, great set. In this interview, I don't, we couldn't actually get a copy of the recording from the Detroit Jazz Festival of them playing together. So we're going to do the next best thing, and I think this is a pretty good thing, actually. We'll hear some new music from Donnie's record. And also a sneak preview of a record that doesn't even come out till 2013, I think. And that is Jeffrey Keezer's solo piano album. And in fact, we're going to start with that. And I'm just, I'm sending this out to all of the guys from Bandcamp going, not from the website Bandcamp, but from actually Bandcamp, uh, from back in the eighties who listened to this music with me. Uh, this is Jeffrey Keezer playing a song that may need an introduction to many of you does not to me or to any of my friends from back in the day.
my guests here at the Detroit Jazz Festival are Jeffrey Kieser and Donnie McCaslin. Uh, it's really great to have you both back on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great. Thanks. Uh, well, I say back on the show, actually, uh, Jeffrey, in your case, although I have interviewed you before, no one has ever heard it. It's deep in the Jazz Session archives right now. It's deep, <laughs> deep in the caverns. Yes, it's in the, <laughs> in the vaults under my apartment. Um, and actually, Donnie, I think now it's the only people I've ever interviewed three times for this show are you and Sonny Rollins. So... Uh, so welcome back for the the third time. I'm deeply honored <laughs> to be mentioned in the same sentence as Sonny Rollins in any capacity. <laughs> well, uh, maybe since you're holding the mic, Donnie, we'll uh, we'll just keep keep going with you for a minute. And uh, you, the two of you, each played multiple times uh, during this festival. Uh, but I saw you in a, a duo setting, which, as I understand it, was the first time—not the first time you'd played together, obviously—but the first time you'd played duo together. Is that right? That's right. How did that come about? It just sort of materialized in a way. Um, there was just some emails back and forth between Jeff and uh, Chris Collins, who booked the festival, and, and, and it just happened, and, and I was thrilled to be a part of it. Can you talk a little bit about uh, playing uh, in the duo setting and, and kind of what uh, challenges and opportunities it, it presents? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I've rarely done, um, occasionally with a bass player, occasionally with a drummer. Um, I think... For me, you know, Jeffrey's such a complete musician and such a compelling musician. I, um, I just felt like, you know, thinking about the music we were going to play, you know, trying to prepare myself with getting a sense of the tunes. And then I just felt like, in a way, whatever transpired was going to transpire. And, and part of that is I just felt so comfortable in the way he plays. Even when it's really um, esoteric, busy, I still feel a real sense of grounding. And and so, I, to me, I felt like there was a lot of freedom in what was happening. And and it was like I was just along for the ride. And 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 it was it was really fun. And and I thought, you know, it's it's a, it's a really great context to play. I I feel like we have some shared musical language, and and. You know, as we were playing, I thought, boy, there's a lot of possibilities that I could see. You know, if we have opportunity to continue doing this, there's a lot of different places it could go and, and, um, that I think would be really interesting. So I, I, I found it also a great format because the current thing I'm doing as a leader, which I did today is, you know, sort of is intense and can be loud and, you know, it's very, it's so nice to just play duo and to be able to play really soft and to really, you know, to to really explore the dynamic range. And again, with Jeffrey being so um, such a complete player and so strong, it's like you know, you feel I feel like it can go anywhere, not only harmonically and rhythmically, but dynamically. Mm-hmm. You know, and it and it just it feels comfortable, and I don't you know, I don't feel like I have to, you know. I feel well. It's just it's just a pleasure. Yeah, Jeffrey. Let me ask you when you're when you're playing in that setting. Is there? <laughs> yeah. Well done. Thank you, Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. but we're uh, we're low budgeting this as is often the case in the jazz session. And so there's only two mics and there's three speakers. So uh, there's some some intrepid mic passing happening. Um, when you're playing in a in a duet setting, does that does it change your role or add other things to your role as a as a pianist, given how much of the rest of the music you have to occupy? 
It really depends who I'm playing with. Um, sure. I played some duets uh, with Jim Hall, you know, a great legendary guitarist. And Jim's thing is he really likes things to be very sparse and almost like the role of the piano. He doesn't want to hear pianistic sounding things as much as he just kind of... I realized after about six months of working with him that he really wasn't interested in piano stuff at all. He just kind of dug my, whatever it was, whatever my harmonic concept was, and he wanted to have little kind of dialogues, like almost single lines, you know, two single lines sort of just crossing each other and kind of dialoguing in that way. But he, you know, and then he's the nicest guy in the world. And I remember the first night we played duet at the Village Vanguard, he came up to me, and, and, and Donnie's right. I mean, I, I, my playing is generally pretty dense, and there's, there's a lot going on. Um, it's not, not to everybody's taste all the time, but, you know, Jim comes up to me in the nicest way, and he goes, yeah, man, I, I really dig what you're doing, but you think we could kind of thin it out just a little bit, you know? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem, you know? So I kind of consciously tried to just scale it back a little, and, and not in any way, I don't mean dumb it down or simplify i just mean in terms of the density of what i was doing i was trying to leave more space and and he kept coming up to me every after every set going yeah jeff you know that man i love what you're doing man you know very positive encouraging but gee you think we could just kind of you know just thin it out a little bit more and god after a week i thought god if i thin it out anymore i'm just gonna turn into vapor up here i won't even be here you know <laughs> just walk out and immediately walk back off stage yeah just, just, just every set boy you know like like the invisible or the two you know two-dimensional guy that you know you turn to the side you know to the point where you can't even be seen but um I understood eventually what he meant by that. And so it depends on who I'm playing with. And it also depends a lot on the venue. Like, we're playing outdoors, um, you know, in the afternoon. And, and there's a lot going on at the Detroit Festival. You've got four or five stages going on at once. So I felt whether, uh, um, you know, whether it was correct or not. But, I mean, I, I felt like I kind of had to amp things up a little bit just to get that sound cuz cuz you know just you know we're playing duet but the the a, a lot of the sound is coming from the piano and and it's it's like I felt like I kind of had to really play a little bit louder than I normally do and and kind of fill it in a little bit more cuz just just trying to get that get it to project somehow I remember talking to Steve Smith the drummer that played with Journey in the 80s and uh he was talking about how the music evolved in a certain way that that whole thing you call, that they call stadium rock i laughed when you said stadium jazz i was just Johnny's gonna go there as a matter stadium of fact jazz. Yeah.
that whole that whole sound evolved because of the the size of the venues were getting bigger and bigger, and as these bands started playing, literally football stadiums, you, he said you literally couldn't do anything subtle because it would be lost in the sort of wash of all the echo and the you know the reverb and anything. So they started making the music actually simplifying the music in a way, and and. Um, just so these things would project it's, it's kind of like a musical equivalent of speaking in a you know theatrical voice you know <laughs> right and um and so then they started making records that more accurately reflected the experience the audience was getting in the stadium so the records themselves became like the sound of the live gig so you started having, you know, big, huge reverbs and big drums and multiple, you know, overdubs and of guitars and everything sounded huge and big and massive all the time. So, um, I don't know. I was just thinking a, a little bit about that when I was playing, like in, in order to project, I mean, if Donnie and I were to play in a, in a hall, you know, like in a concert hall where the sound, everything was really, you know, intimate and everything was mic'd really, really, you know, really, really well, and people were really there sitting quietly, I might approach the music completely differently, you know? I might leave a lot more space. I might play things that are really... We could even get into some really simple kind of folky kind of stuff, you know? So, I mean, for what it's worth, I was conscious of, like, playing outdoors in the afternoon and, and really trying to get that energy really out there past the end of the stage and out into the audience and make people feel what we were doing. Cause I don't, we, cause we don't have a drum, we don't have drums or bass. So, you know, somehow from the piano, I was trying to really, you know, project that. And, um, and, and, uh, I guess that's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> Basically, I thought I had something else, but I think that's about <laughs> it, you know, but maybe that's not the right approach. I don't know. You know, I, I was also trying to get my own energy up because it was like two fifteen in the afternoon. Sure. And you know, we're used to playing at night. Right. You know. So I mean I'd literally just woken up an hour and a half before. <laughs> so sometimes I might overcompensate. But I mean Donnie is such an incredible, incredible musician and he's like playing with another piano player because you I mean very few people really play the full range of the tenor saxophone. You know, people kinda play in that middle yesterday at Wayne Shorter at, when he was talking about actors in Hollywood, he was talking about how all the Hollywood actors now, the male and female, they kind of speak in a very middle, you know, range. Tessitura, he called it. But, you know, they, they don't use the full range of their voice. And I, I think that's the same with a lot of musicians. I think, I think saxophone players don't really use the full range of the saxophone. And it might be a technical thing or it might just be... You know, it's the same on the piano. Like most piano players don't use the the bottom and top octaves of the piano. The the guy that got me into that was but you remember Buddy Montgomery? When I first moved to New York in nineteen eighty nine, I used to go see Buddy Montgomery play solo piano. So he played six nights a week at the Parker Meridian Hotel. And he had one of those pianos that had the bar that went around the piano so you could like sit right at the piano <laughs> with your ginger ale or, or something stronger if you wanted and just listen. And he, he used that bottom octave of the piano that nobody uses and he would walk bass lines down there, you know, and then, then he would solo way, way up in the top octave of the piano that nobody uses. And I thought, wow, that's a whole two octaves that nobody even deals with, you know, out of a seven octave instrument, you know, and, and on the saxophone, I mean, Donnie, he'll get way down in that deep, register and 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 you deal with harmony like like a piano player i mean you've obviously it's 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 almost like you play vertically sometimes you know 
I mean, you, as I mean, the horizontal thing too. But but most saxophone players don't deal with the vertical. When I say vertical, I mean like if you were to look at a chord on a on a like a piece of piano music. You know, you see a chord kind of stacked up like a almost like a vertebrae on a spine, or yes. like like lanterns, those Chinese lanterns you see hanging down or something like that, or like a string of, you know, a necklace, if you turn a necklace vertical, something like that, you know, all those things are there from the bottom to the top, and, and you deal with that entire range. Oh, thank you. So I, I I really respond to that. It's it's really like, like playing with a fellow, you know, chord instrument. <laughs> but you've got, you just, you're just so happening, man. I'm just, oh, thank you. <laughs> that's why, I, you know, when they, I could only think of about maybe two people that I would want to play duo with right now. And, and you're at the very top of that list. So, so I'm, I'm glad deeply, that we could make it happen. I'm deeply honored. <laughs> I'm very deeply honored. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that I, I just, um, I have worked on chords in that vertical way, thinking from the piano voicing yeah. perspective yeah. and, and to try to work that out in different ways on the horn helps me to develop my harmonic language. to ask about a, uh, a non-technical part of yesterday's duo gig that really struck me, and that was uh, uh, up to that point, I think of all the sets that I had seen in the fest, it was the one where there was the most evident joy on stage. It just seemed like two people completely loving the circumstance, you know, even if, even with whatever, uh, you know, kind of external circumstances of having to play louder for the outdoor crowd or whatever. But it just seemed like two people who were really completely in love with the music and with this moment of being on stage. And it really struck me because it, it made me feel so good. And that is the primary, well, I guess it's not the only, but maybe it's the primary thing I go to music for is to have some kind of emotional response. And so, um, maybe Donnie, I'll start with you if I could and just, uh, I don't know if there's anything you want to respond to in that. I'm not even sure I have a smart question to finish well, no, that. No, with. I mean, I, that makes sense. I, I mean, I, I, uh, what I would say is that I was aware of how special that moment was to me thinking I'm so excited to play with Jeff and to play this way. And 
regardless of, you know, maybe I don't feel good about how I played on this, what, you know, I was going to try to just let all that go and just, man, th- and think, you know, this is a great moment and I'm going to enjoy this as I'm playing with one of the greatest musicians in the world. And I'm playing at this beautiful festival overlooking the water. There's all these people in the audience. The wind is, the breeze is going. We're playing some really fun tunes. Like this is it. This is why I've worked so hard. Uh, over many years and you know gone through the travails that we go through in life and as a musician I did it for these kind of experiences and and I was like I'm not gonna let anything take me away from enjoying this moment because this should be a moment that's enjoyed and celebrated because like you know well I'm starting to repeat myself but just you know the, all the hours in the practice room like you know all that it's for me to lead up to these moments and to thoroughly enjoy them. And I, I was talking about the other day, like I, when I was a young kid, there was a book about John Coltrane that I, that I read and which is maybe not a great idea because <laughs> it talked about him practicing like 20 hours a day, right, exactly. you know, and I was his like, family would step over him when he was, yeah, in the room was like 12 yeah, and I was like, yeah. Whoa, but there was some, there was some, I can't remember the story, but there was some sense of him talking about, you know, the sense of love and, kind of spreading it to the audience and and the spiritual thing and I thought you know I remember thinking like that's really cool that's a really cool thing and 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 I would hope that the music that I would be involved in could somehow make people feel good you know and and so I think all those things were in play for me yesterday and, and I was like yeah man I'm gonna enjoy this moment because this is what it's all about for me. Do you consciously remind yourself of that, you know, as you're walking on stage or as you're getting ready to, to go to play, do you, do you constantly try to, or uh, consciously try to put away all of the things that got you to that moment, you know, whatever the plane flight and the hotel and the booking and all that stuff and just get into the music. Is there some way you kind of switch something in your brain to make that happen or does it just happen automatically? Well, I would say it's a little bit of both. I mean, there's sometimes where you walk on stage and it starts to happen and it feels so great. It's like, it's just so easy, you know, but there are other times where it's not so easy or, or you're maybe feeling, you know, like, Oh, I don't know how I'm playing or whatever. And that's when it's more of a conscious decision. You just say, wait a minute. No, I'm not, don't go there. I'm, I'm going to be in it and I'm going to enjoy it. You know, cause it's a special thing for me to play with, with Jeffrey. It was really special for me. And, and so I wanted to be there. You uh, you both were, as I mentioned, involved in, in multiple sets this weekend. And uh, maybe, Donnie, while you still got the mic, will you just talk about the band that you uh, had today uh, at the yeah. festival? Yeah, I was playing with um, my current working group, which is um, Jason Linder on keyboards and Mark Juliana on drums and Tim Lefebvre on electric bass. And we, um, we've been touring the last uh, year and a half, um, more so recently. And we made a new record, which is coming out in a month. And it's called Casting for Gravity. And it's um, sort of explorations in my take on, or my reaction to electronic music and dub music, stuff I've been listening to lately and, and um, trying, to, trying to get myself further out of my comfort zone and just to challenge myself and push myself into this new um, kind of territory or what for me is new territory and try to, you know, push the music into something different and, and see what happens. And, and, um, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Um, so that was a group that played today and we were playing mostly music from, uh, this new record, but a couple tunes from my last, my last recording and, uh, 
It was a lot of fun. Yeah, this is not a particularly insightful observation, but it was amazing, I thought. And I was, uh, I was watching in particular these three guys. I would guess they were maybe between 19 and 23 or 24 right. who were sitting about five or six rows back. And the whole show, they were in unison, like bobbing their heads to the music. And two of the guys were air drumming to, uh, Mark Giuliana's music, which is playing, which is impossible anyway, because Mark is from some other planet where they don't play the way they play here on Earth. So I don't know what, I don't know how they were air drumming because no one else can play like that. Sure. But, but it was fantastic. The thing that it, uh, that it, it, it kind of encapsulated for me was, uh, an appreciation of the music that I equate more with people going to rock concerts, which I thought was really cool because it, I think we can get really wrapped up in the, the kind of esoteric or the intellectual side of the music. And there's a lot of just the gut level. The music can just kind of wash over you and carry you away with it that I thought today's set really did a great job of, of reminding us about. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. And I, I think, um, some of the musical language that we're drawn from, and especially a guy like Mark, he's so versed in that drum and bass language and the electronic language. That's really where he's coming from. And I think that speaks to that generation, that young generation. That's kind of the stuff that they're into. I mean, if it's that, you know, it's, I don't know a better way to say it. There's, there's a more poetic way to say <laughs> what I'm trying to say, but it, I think it does, I think it does speak to their generation. And, 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 you know, for me, it's, I, I do feel like, um, you know, the groups like Led Zeppelin and, you know, that stuff is part of my musical DNA and, 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 and it does sometimes feel like a rock gig when we're playing. And that you, we, that the one tune we played stadium jazz, that was, we had played a gig at the 55 bar and Mark got off the drums and he was like, man, that's like some stadium jazz we're playing. <laughs> Echoing back to what, and I was like, yeah, that's right. And I was like, okay, I got to write a tune without feeling and hence that, that song. So yeah, there is a strong element of that. And, and, um, it's because I, I love that and, and, and just want to try to bring it all in together in a way that's compelling. That's fantastic. And so that album, again, is called Chasing Gravity and that's out in October. Is that right? Casting for Gravity. Or Casting for Gravity. I'm yeah, sorry. And it's out October 2nd. Fabulous. <laughs>
And now, Jeffrey, can you mention the other things that you were involved in while you were here this weekend? Yeah, uh, the other thing we did that we just finished about an hour ago was a tribute to Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, and that was a band I played in in 1989 to 1990. I was the last piano player to play with that band before Art passed away. And um, it was it was fun. I, I mean, you know, it, we've obviously, I mean, you know, I was 18 years old, I'm 41 now, so it was quite a while ago when, when that happened. But, um, you know, it, it was interesting. It was kind of like, uh, how do I describe it? I, I, I mean, I actually had more fun than I thought I was going to have. <laughs> you know, and this is not any way a, a, a diss on on Art Blakey and that whole legacy. That was great, and that was you know at at when I was at that age, that was my goal to be in that band. I actually was when when I joined Art Blakey's band about two months after I I met Miles Davis, and he offered me his gig as well. And at the time, I was like, "No, nah, Miles, I." I really want to be with Art Blakey, you know? That was like a choice I had to make. Um, at the time, Miles was playing like uh, more pop kind of stuff, and, and I didn't feel like the role of the keyboards in his band was something that I wanted to do at that time. Although Miles, we had a couple of conversations, and he he said something to me then that I've really started to realize now how deep it was, and, and he was trying to get me to be in his band and he's because he knew that I was comfortable playing straight ahead jazz and playing Art Blakey stuff. And he goes, he said, um, and I'm not going to do his voice, but he just said, the only way you're going to grow as a musician is if you're uncomfortable. He said, you need to be in a situation where you're uncomfortable to, to, to grow, which meant, you know, you need to leave the stuff that you're comfortable with playing straight ahead and you need to play this, this pop stuff that I'm doing. And I, and I didn't really understand how that would help me grow as a musician, you know, at, at that time. Um, but, uh, y you know, that I realized that that was kind of his philosophy, really. You know, he, as soon as Miles, if you look through the history of his music and how many, how many times he changed the course of music, you know, in his own, not just his music, but music, period, in his career, you can see that it was always about personal growth. For him, he's like, I've done this. I, I don't know what else I can do with this, and I need to do something else, you know. Um, but to go back and play that music, it was it was fun. I had a great time. I mean, Lewis Nash swings his Ooh. ass off, you know. I mean, he's one of my favorite drummers, and as far as straight ahead jazz goes, you know, he's just absolutely one of the greatest, and it just feels so good. So that feeling was there, and it brought back good memories, you know, and none of the bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, once in a while, it's fun to do that kind of thing. But I, I certainly don't want to make a career out of being, uh, you know, out of tribute bands and ghost bands and those kinds of sure. things. I mean, I'm interested in doing something that's, you know, different and, and that's, that's going to help me grow in a different way, you know. Um, but it was, it was, it was fun. And, and once in a while, like I said, you know, and you still, you try to, you know, even like when I was playing with Ray Brown. Uh, I was probably the weirdest piano player that ever played in Ray Brown's band, you know, but I tried to to push it as much as I could, you know, it, it, for myself. I'm not saying that Ray Brown's music needed pushing in any way. It was just fine the way it was. But I'm just saying in terms of my own connection to that way of playing, you know, that it, a much more conservative sort of approach, I, I tried to push the envelope as much as I could get away with. And Ray was fine with it. He was just like... You know, if I took it out or whatever, he would just go along with it. You know, he he really didn't mind. Um, the only thing he ever said to me, really, was uh, one night we were playing Tintin Deo 
D minor, a song, you know, by Dizzy Gillespie. And, uh, I started playing the Imperial March. And, and Ray just leaned over and he said, jazz, please. <laughs> I said, all right, all right. You know. <laughs> oh, that's great. But, uh, yeah, it, it's fun. And, and, you know, I just, I always try to, whatever that you know part of being i think of being a professional musician is is playing the gig that you're on i mean i'm not going to go into an art blakey tribute or a ray brown tribute and um you know show up with my fender roads and my pedals and my you know all that stuff that's not the gig so i'm going to try to play always play the gig and and do what's appropriate and attempt to you know, sort of make a personal statement at the same time. And, you know, sometimes it works. <laughs> <laughs> as, uh, as I mentioned at the top, actually, I'm going to uh, just stick with you for another second, Jeffrey. As I mentioned at the top, we have a, uh, a longer interview in the can that we're, yeah. uh, but I, I did want you to mention some of the other recording projects that are either have happened or are on the, on the cusp, maybe in your future. Yeah. So, so the thing that, uh, is in the can right now, and it's probably coming out in the spring, Spring of 2013 is a solo piano record. I'm calling it Heart of the Piano <laughs> for two reasons. Uh, number one, because it's where my heart is. You know, that no matter what I do, uh, you know, you know, whether it's playing electronic keyboards or playing collaborating with various, you know, non-jazz, you know, musicians from around the world. For me, you know, it's still the the acoustic piano is is home base for me. So I, you know, call it Heart of the Piano, but also just to kind of make light of uh, musicians that take themselves too seriously, you know, and call their records the art of the whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, how do you, you know, define your record as the art of that instrument, right. you know, so I would never do that. So I call it the heart of the piano, H-E-A-R-T. Um, and one of the tunes actually on there is, is a cover of, of Rush's tune, Limelight, which Donnie and I played. Yeah. And uh, Donnie's such a ridiculously great musician and a trained musician that I, I handed him a piano part full grand staff in a key of B major with seven sharps and you know if you're not familiar the saxophone is a it reads you read an, a, a full step higher you know so a lot of mu instruments are transposing instruments so I handed him this thing with seven sharps on it and say here you go have fun <laughs> you know and he comes in and just absolutely sight reads it perfect and not only sight reads it perfect but plays you know with with beautiful phrasing and puts personality and vibe on it and everything so I mean this you know this cat's is like absolute consummate pro you know to infinity and beyond now I have to say that <laughs> that was a very happy moment for me because I grew up uh, I, I originally grew up as a kid listening to jazz, but when I got into high school, I became obsessed with Rush and Yes and Genesis and King Crimson. So as soon as you said, before you, I had, obviously I knew you played Limelight on the solo record. And so as soon as you said, we're going to play a tune by a band from across the river and Canada's across the river, I said, Oh, we're going to get some Rush. That's fantastic. <laughs> and then I was singing along in my head the yeah. entire time. And it was, you know, I've heard other, I've heard people cover rock tunes especially swung and sometimes it can feel like a huge stretch sure. but that tune really felt uh, it felt very natural to me if you didn't know that it was originally a tune by rush there would be no reason to suspect that it was taken from somewhere else well i mean when you listen to neil peart play i mean he swings in a way his his feel actually has some swing built into it you know if you check it out 
And I mean, he's a big, huge, big Buddy Rich fan, and you know, I mean, he's he's basically a jazz drummer that has a rock gig, right? So I mean, <laughs> it's not that much of a stretch to play Rush as as jazz, you sure. Know? <laughs> <laughs> Donnie, let me ask you, and in fact, I'm going to put this question to both of you. Uh, one of the, the major figures celebrated at the festival this year was Wayne Shorter. And so I thought I would just ask each of you uh, if you want to say a few words about, about Wayne or his influence on your music or uh, oh, yeah, reactions to, to him. Sure. I'd love to. Um, you know, one thing about Wayne's playing, you know, I think that, that moves me so much is the compositional nature of his improvising. And... Uh, I mean, from my own experience, you know, I grew up in this era of like, you know, practicing a lot of transcribed solos, working on two fives, working on scales, working on patterns, you know, all this like sort of jazz language stuff, which is great. Um, and then there's the, the, the question of, well, how do you put this together? You know, and, and, and I think I, you know, I grew up, um, really, you know, in love with John Coltrane as a youngster and, and then Michael Brecker as I got into my teenage years and, and, uh, you know, really kind of virtuosic, you know, kind of tenor playing and stuff. And, and I, I think when, when I really started to feel like I was absorbing Wayne's playing, it really changed me so much because it helped me to let go of this expectation that I had to like, you know, completely burn out on every solo and, you know, and, and, and also just, it's so imaginative, his, his improvising. And, and, um, I'm thinking right now just about the plug nickel recordings, you know, and there's some incredible examples where he takes a theme and goes through, uh, like inversion, retrograde inversion and so on. You know, it just takes this little three note theme and does all, it's just, it's, it's incredible. And, and, and just that concept actually is something that I, I practice sometimes, um, to help get me away from the language that I normally play. And I think that's something that, um, is stunning to me about his improvising. Um, 
And then, you know, in terms of his, his writing, you know, like most people, it's had a huge influence on me. And, and I think it's, you know, there's the thing of just seeing how he's just um, progressed stylistically, like what Jeffrey was talking about with Miles Davis. You know, you see that with Wayne, his writing with Art Blakey, and then, you know, and then with Miles, and then with Weather Report, and then his solo records, Atlantis. That's like a classic, you know. And on from there, it's just, it's... Um, I guess you know probably the, the the heavy melodic sense of his music I love, and and the the harmony so deep. I mean, um, he's just a tremendous, tremendous figure in the music for me, and and it's still just to see him up there. He's seventy nine, I think. If I I, I, could I think be wrong. that's about right. And just to see him up there last night, and it was so spontaneous it was so in the moment he was so engaged and was so creative and say and so free i I mean that's that's a heavy inspiration for life (laughs) to me personally i mean he seems to be not only free inside the music but he seems to be free of being wayne shorter as well there's no well, I'm Wayne Shorter, and that's therefore I so have to I do have this. I have to deliver this in this right. concert. I have to play this tune. I have to. My solo has to reach this point. You know that kind of thing. It's like no, he's just. Yeah. Well, thank that's you. Incredible. And Jeffrey, and obviously you've had a a, a take of um, Wayne from the bandstand itself. Yeah. Um, I I mean they uh, Rini Rosnes in a panel discussion asked Wayne yesterday at the festival. In, in the jazz conversations tent, <laughs> she said, you know, what, what were your, some life changing moments? And I was I started to think about for me, uh, even though I, I grew up being born in 1970 and my, my, my dad, uh, is a jazz musician as well. He's a drummer. So he had like black market by weather report and heavy weather and this stuff. And so I heard this stuff when I was a really little kid. And I, I think I, I listened to black market probably several times a day, every day for a couple of years. I mean, the record was literally worn out. You know, it'd go... <laughs> That's, you know... <laughs> I listened to that. And and then when Atlantis came out, and, you know, in those days, I mean, you you just went into a record store and you'd buy a record because the cover looked cool. You know, you couldn't preview it. You couldn't listen to a track on iTunes and then decide whether you wanted to buy that track or buy the whole record because you like nine out of the 12 tracks on the record, so it's cheaper to just buy the whole record. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. You just bought the record. And I saw that cover, and I went, ooh. And I bought it, and I took it home, and it was it was a life-changing moment. And, and, and then Phantom Navigator came out, and then it was like another shift, and then Joyrider, you know, and it, it changed my whole concept of how to write music. Um how to think about music and uh can you be more specific about that in well, what ways um i mean you could hear you could hear a lot of those elements in his writing on on the, even on the earlier stuff on the weather report stuff but i think something maybe it was just a developmental thing in my own brain you know like i turned 15 and i heard atlantis and there was something that enabled my brain to actually get it you know what I mean? I, and I understood it and I was able to hear all those chords and all those harmonies and bass lines and how everything strung together both vertically, like we were talking about before, and, and horizontally. Like the greatest writing is. I mean, if you look at Bach, like fugues, you know, I mean, everything lines up both, both directions. You know what I mean? And that's just a mark of good writing. 
Um, but to get to actually play with Wayne Shorter, uh, which I did in nine, 2009, I had uh, subbed for Danilo for, on, on three gigs. We played the Hollywood Bowl, played by Jazz Festival. We played the Ottawa Jazz Festival and Montreal Jazz Festival. And, um, that was, that was an absolute career high for me. I mean, I've had other, you know, peaks and, and things, but that for me is, that was it. That was, that was my dream of life to play with Wayne Shorter. And I did. And, and, uh, and he was, it was really cool. And, you know, I mean, I may have had a completely, because of my own attachment to the idea of playing, of being on stage with Wayne, playing that music, you know, and just, I mean, I love that band. That's probably my absolute favorite band in the whole world. Um, you know, maybe I had a different experience than Wayne did. You know, I don't know if Wayne dug it or not. You know what I mean? <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, I was in heaven, you know. Um, and he said some of those things that he said at the, at the talk yesterday. He, he, the first thing he's, when I, when I, um, called him up on the phone to ask, talk to him about the gig, I said, uh, um, you know, do you want to, are we going to rehearse? Or he's like, I don't know. How do you rehearse eternity? You know? <laughs> And then when we got on the bandstand, he turns over to me before we started the first n- note of the of the night, and he turns to me and he goes, zero gravity, you know? And I went, okay, <laughs> there it is, you know? But I, I think also, you know, I because my own work ethic is, if someone calls me for a gig, and this would, whether it was Art Blakey or Ray Brown or Christian McBride or Wayne or Jim Hall or whoever it is that I'm working with, I, I try to always learn as much of their music as possible beforehand. Whether it's, you know, even if it means me sitting down and, I mean, God, when I got Ray Brown's gig, I literally made, I transcribed, I bought about maybe like his his last 10 records that he made and, and sat down with every tune. I'm, I'm saying this to try to encourage young musicians and let you know what the work ethic, what I think is a good work ethic. I mean, you know, I transcribed probably 85, 90 tunes and I made a book because there was no book, you know. It was just everything was played by memory, and I brought in I brought in a big thick book of charts, and you know as as we played more and more gigs, I would gradually put the charts away, and and after a couple of months, I had them memorized. But you know, so I came in with a stack of charts for Wayne's gig, and Wayne was like, "Yeah, you know, we can just kind of like we can just play free for." He was very you know very gracious. He's like he didn't even expect me to know his music. He's like, "We can just play free for an hour, or maybe we'll play Footprints." I'm like. You want to do Joyrider, Shadow Hill Way, you know, Prometheus. I'm about what do you want to do? I got it, you know. So he seemed like, you know, that's, you know, sort of, you know, that that made it easier for me to just kind of jump on into that gig, kind of cold and, and play it. And but still, there was a lot of surprises and there was a lot of things that threw me because they don't like like he said yesterday they don't have a set list. You know, Wayne never, he doesn't say a word on stage. He might, if he says anything, it'll be something really abstract, like right. zero gravity. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's, that's not the name of a tune, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, um, but it was, it was just amazing and great. And, um, like I said, a, a absolute career high for me and something that I'll carry with me. In fact, I couldn't even play normal music for like a year after that. I would get hired and I'd go on a, a gig with somebody and, 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 you know, it would be, Okay, we're gonna play the head, and then we go to the guitar solo. Then we'll do the piano solo. Then we'll do the fours with the drums. And I could, I didn't even, I couldn't even wrap my mind around that. <laughs> I was like, "What does that mean?" You know, because I just wanted everything to be a dialogue. You know, I wanted right. to be on, like, what what I actually experience as being the leading edge of time itself. It's like if you're like, 
like in some kind of bubble that's pushing out into the universe and you're right there on that edge and you literally don't know what's going to happen in one second from now, you know? I mean, we can predict, we can make predictions based on our experience what's going to happen, but we don't really know that right now we're looking out this window on the 17th floor and like a helicopter isn't going to crash through it or something. You just never know what's going to happen, you know? But you really, you know, Wayne is so, he, he really keys you in to that that moment in such a deep way and you're just absolutely you're just open to anything that happens and and when i when i listen to that band play i mean that to me that's just one of the greatest bands out here you know and and every night is absolutely different you don't know what the experience is going to be and how do you even judge it whether it was good or bad or you know if you felt something you know then it was good and and the thing that's so encouraging to me and what's so hip about this festival in detroit I mean, I can give major props to the Detroit Jazz Festival because I was standing there watching Wayne Shorter playing, you know, and, and today watching Donnie's band playing like really the the forefront of music right now, like the most forward thinking music there is out here. And and seeing how, you know, hundreds and thousands of people are like standing around digging it, you know, and re- and reacting emotionally to this music. And it has nothing to do about, nothing to do with, th- there was, there was no reason in the world to have to try to simplify music or, or bring it down to some kind of common denominator level. All that stuff about, I mean, you know, pop music, how, how pop music on the radio, like, I read an article about this, how, how, like, the, they science, someone actually scientifically analyzed how there's less chord changes in pop music today than there were 30 years ago. Like, you need a scientist to tell you that. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> but this is not the... Fu- There's nothing wrong with... Pe- people aren't any dumber than they were. People, I think, if anything, are smarter. People are more open-minded and, and more intelligent than they ever were. And so to, to play complex, forward-thinking music like Donnie's doing or like Wayne's doing, you know, um, and people are actually... People are really feeling it and really reacting emotionally and, and showing up to hear this music and to be inspired and... and, and be there for it and and that absolutely proves to me that i mean i i have faith in humanity when i see that you know what i mean yeah yeah that's beautiful
my guests are Jeffrey Keezer and Donnie McCaslin. It's been a pleasure to talk to both of you. Thanks very much for doing it. Thank you. That's it. Episode 417 and the very final episode of the Jazz Session is in the books. I'm Jason Crane. This is and was, and at least until the internet collapses, forever shall be the Jazz Session. Sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Kyle Kloss. Visit thejazzsession.com. You can hear all 417 shows there. Please, please, please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And there's no next time. But, you know, come back to the site anyway and drop me a note from time to time and let me know how you're doing. Thanks so much, everybody, for making this possible. I love you all very much. See you on the next show. Bye.